No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. We were excited to team up with the editors of the Literary Review to present a special switched up storytelling panel at the 50th AWP Conference and Book Fair. Our first true life tale from that event was written by No You Tell Its Own Mike Dressel, who experiences the opposite of ghosting when an overseas fling takes a dark turn via text. Here is Armageddon in Bloom, written by Mike Dressel and read for us by Heather Lang. It was near the end of my first night visiting Zagreb at dinner with my traveling companions, Uma and Jill, when I received the text from Helmut that read, Don't worry, I'm not a stalker, but I must speak about my feelings. Oh. The many text messages preceding that one were, all of a piece, broken English declarations of love, escalating in intensity. It seems crazy, but you are in my mind, read one. Maybe so, but... I was physically 145 kilometers away in a different country for only 72 hours and intent on sightseeing, not cementing a relationship. Then he wrote, I am a human nature and I have to tell you my feelings. My hope that these SMS bombardments might diminish was in vain as he followed up with, I have fallen in love with you a little bit. I would have liked to have felt equally enamored or at least suitably flattered, but instead I thought, this is a pay-as-you-go mobile. At the time, I was spending half the year in Austria as part of a joint master's degree program. Though Graz is the second largest city in the country, it's at heart a university town, the population reaching only about 300,000 people at its peak. After a decade plus in New York City, with its 8.4 million inhabitants, I looked at the opportunity to live abroad in a small but lively stuff as an antidote or corrective to a particular rut I was experiencing. But after four months, the thrill of relocation had given way, inevitably, to routine. Dining in the same restaurants near the student home where I resided, always neglecting to buy my groceries early on in the weekend because the shops closed on Sunday, silently cursing everyone at the post office or tram stop who ignored the importance of maintaining an orderly queue. In the leisure time afforded me, besides day trips and weekend excursions, I frequented the Stamtisches at the bar run by English expats, attended gatherings in various dorms, danced at something called the worst of the 90s party at Post Garage. After only one outing, I made sure to never again set foot in the nightclubs at the Unifertel, where 18- and 19-year-olds drank watery cocktails and dry hump to terrible Euro disco. Australia is still a nominally Catholic country, and the queer subculture in Graz was hard to locate. To the best of my research, there were only four gay bars in Graz at that time, and I had checked out two of them already skipping the bathhouse, which only left Brush, a small dance club on the outskirts of town. Getting there involved a walk to the bus stop, then a 15-minute ride, then an additional 10 or so minute walk. 
I arrived there on the early side, around nine, since I was traveling the following afternoon. Descending the stairs, I found the venue was occupied by precisely three people. Two bartenders and the DJ, who was still setting up. Here, I thought, is your Friday night, for better or worse. At least a pint of beer only cost two euro. I kept an eye on the time as the last night bus to get me home left at 11.43. The room had begun to fill as I ordered my second drink. My image of Helmut is him taking, is him landing on the stool next to me, aggressively signaling the bartender. His goatee was neatly trimmed, his black hair spiky, his nails lacquered, his eyes full rimmed. He wore overalls and shiny black ankle boots. He was not necessarily the gentleman I envisioned meeting when I had constructed particular fantasies about Austrian men. Those fantasies generally involved lederhosen-clad blonde brutes. Drink in hand, he pushed through the small mass of bodies to the DJ booth to request Lady Gaga, then annexed a section of the dance floor to stomp and twirl. I'm sorry, but I just had to dance it out, he said when he sat back down next to me Less an apology than a provocation. You do you, I replied. Where are you from? He asked, picking up on my American accent. New York. The city? I nodded. Ooh, pack me in your suitcase and take me home with you, he said, grabbing at my knees in an exaggerated genuflection. From then on, he would not let me leave his side. I looked at the hour. It was nearing my self-imposed curfew, but Helmut, as he first introduced himself to me, was the only person I'd met in Graz who seemed remotely interested in the fact that I lived in New York. I stoked his attention, fully aware that my allure was partly due to that fact. We drank and flirted, and he took to pouring half his fresh beers into my glass. I had at some point made the decision to miss the night bus, but as another replenished beer sat in front of me, I announced that I had to go. Helmut hinted that his apartment was around the corner from the club. Look, I'm either getting a cab or leaving with you, but I absolutely can't drink anymore, I said. You should know I have a cat, he said. <laughs> cats are fine, I like cats, let's go, I said, taking his hand. At 7 a.m., he mashed the alarm and bounded out of bed to blast Borden this way on the stereo while I lay there getting my bearings. Right as the song ended, he cued it up again, then skipped into the kitchen to make coffee. He was a coil of energy, clearly a morning person, unaffected by the copious fears we consumed the night before. My plan was to collect my things and see myself out, but he gestured to the freshly brewed coffee, entreating me to stay. So, I sat in the kitchen, mug in hand, negotiating my hangover and smoking a cigarette patch from his pack of bulwaz while he showered. The aforementioned black cat made its appearance, rubbing in curiously against my shin, emerging from the bathroom in a black-ribbed sweater and black bondage pants. Helmut sat next to me in the kitchen, lit a cigarette, and conducted a running monologue of his life while he applied his makeup. He told me his last relationship ended because he was too intense. Information I should have flagged, I now realize. And that dating in Graz was hard. 
He worked in a salon and was in the process of getting his license to become a hairdresser. At this, he pointed to his styled blonde wig resting on a styrofoam wig head and was taking a crucial exam this morning. He gestured to his paintings displayed around the apartment, bold patches of primary colors aggressively applied to canvases. When I asked why they were all signed Titus, he indicated that Titus was his nom de guerre. I am Helmut, but I am also Titus, he explained, with a flourish of his hand. This is Titus, <laughs> he said, referencing his eyeliner and outfit. I was warming to him in that unguarded conversation in his kitchen. The brash personality he displayed at the club had softened. We parted at the bus stop with a kiss and an exchange of numbers. His stored in my phone under helmet slash teachers. I caught my train a few hours later. Is this so schwer zu erkennen das Which roughly means, is it so hard to see that I want to know you honestly? Even after returning, from Zagreb. All our interactions were mediated through text message, some of which I had to plug into Google Translate to make sense of. I spent most of my mornings and afternoons in seminars, followed by hours of reading every night plus writing papers. But sitting there at my desk, I always replied that I'd be happy to grab a drink or a coffee. I am missing you, he wrote then. I am wanting to be with you. My attempts to arrange a face-to-face -face meeting were roundly ignored. How was he supposed to know me honestly if he wouldn't see me in person? Over the course of the week, every high-pitched beep, 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 alerting me to a new text pushed me closer to exasperation as every non-declaration of love on my part seemed to do to him. Is it really over before it starts? I responded that I had been truly busy, but my offer to meet stood, so I was just a one-night stand. I weighed the limited time I had left in Austria against his lingering attachment, our differing expectations. To prolong this would be madness. You didn't have to be, but now you are, I replied. It felt like the final button on our correspondence, cruel, but definitive. And it was until two nights later. I was out at a tavern near the city center when a final bitter volley of texts came. Thank you for feeling like a slut, he wrote, which I think he meant thank you for making me feel like a slut, an error in syntax, but there was some credence to the statement as written. <laughs> he was right to call me out. At the same time, I felt like a prop in his psychodrama that I was an exercise in reaffirming his beliefs about love and men. This had gone beyond a misunderstanding of the Moors from one city, one country to another, or my transgressing his moral code. Who was I even negotiating with this whole time? Helmut or Titus? I looked at the blocky type on the Nokia screen. I am still alive. You are not my Armageddon. And there it was, to his mind, We'd gone from hookup to near apocalypse in a little over a week. How does one respond? I wrote, I believe we're done here. And so we were. Switching it up. Our next deleted scene story is a layered look at friendship, 
coffee rituals, and the uneven walking room between women and men. Mike Dressel reads, Walking Room, But Who Hasn't Slept with a Married Man? Written by Heather Lang. From time to time, my buddy Logan and I meet up at The Coffee Hunter. It's an indie joint about 15 minutes southeast of the Las Vegas Strip. He lives across the street from The Coffee Hunter, and I, well, I live across the valley, but there's only so many people who can paint topless mermaids a la 80s hairbands, jellyfish that don't belong in the Museum of Boring, and nudes that manage to tell a new story. So, for our shared love of poetry-infused sequential art, I make the journey across our smog and light-polluted city to see Logan. He's a talented painter and a rather sassy bloke who I tease on occasion for his Australian spellings of certain words, like kala and grey, and also for some words in and of themselves. An example, brekkie. Breakfast, however, seems to be a null point. The two of us are not morning folks, unless still up at 3 a.m. counts as morning. The coffee hunter, which we visit in the late afternoon, is a self-proclaimed industrial chic locale, and I won't deny it. It's all right. It's good, even. Sure, it's nestled in the same parking lot as a Walmart, which hurts. <laughs> After having lived in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood, which brims with all things non-corporate, it stinks that even the best stuff here shares a strip mall with the antithesis of shop local. But surviving and thriving in Las Vegas is all about the moments and the micro-environments. I swear Instagram was made for places like this. From perfectly cremed, dark chocolate-rimmed waffle espresso shots, to vegan orange zest, garnished matcha green tea donuts, from two-toned woodland creature latte arts, to hen and chick sedum that kneel Beneath slightly blasphemous paintings, the shop begs for its clientele to take perfectly square, hashtag no filter, <laughs> photos and share them with their hippest friends. Logan is that kind of pal with whom I can hate on things both he and I enjoy, like the coffee comes up. You know the kind of friends. We give each other butt outs, sibling-like hugs, then say, screw you, with a smile. We first met through a Facebook page called Literary Las Vegas. We bonded immediately because we both moved to this neon city for love. And almost unbelievably, after only two dates, each with our respective partners. Logan moved here for Leslie, a former army helicopter pilot and triathlonista, or so I call her, who superheroes herself all over the place, even now, five months pregnant. She's one of the sweetest humans you could ever meet, but I wouldn't mess with her. I moved here for Michael, head of lighting and special effects for a Cirque du Soleil show. He can create solar systems from Chinese flashlights and air cannons that throw bricks all the way up into the grid. Right away, we decided if there's ever a zombie or political apocalypse, Leslie and Michael are going to save our sorry selves. 
A few weeks back, Logan and I were waiting in line at the Coffee Hunter. Well, it was sort of a line. Actually, it was just Logan and I waiting to order more coffee while the barista prepped something in the back room, but it felt like a line because we were waiting. Retrospectively, I should have teased Logan, should have asked him if he'd call it a queue. Clearly, neither of us had the patience, nor do we have the attention spans to survive an Armageddon. We discussed this in detail as we waited in line, and we agreed. Well, we definitely needed Michael and Leslie. As Logan and I continued to wait at the coffee counter near the iPad, which serves as the register, I complained about having just been unfriended. <laughs> a dude's wife decided that he couldn't co-host a poetry workshop with a woman. It made her uncomfortable. Even though I'm engaged, even though they've been married for over 20 years and have been together since they were 15, even though we've never hung out alone, not even in public, at a place like a coffee shop. But really, Heather, Logan asked, let's cut to the chase. Who hasn't slept with a married man? He lifted one eyebrow inquisitively. Good point, I guess, was my response. That said, I rather doubted Logan had slept with a married man, or any man for that matter. He seemed pretty straight to me. Yeah, I should have slept with him, I said. I mean, if I were going to get blamed for being a hussy anyhow. Yep, Logan replied. There's a lesson here somewhere. Whatever, it's not my type, I said before my mind trailed off. I was looking at an Elvis donut. I don't eat donuts, but I couldn't remember if Elvis meant peanut butter and banana, or peanut butter and bacon, or peanut butter and whatever else. Why not, Logan asked. Why not what? Oh, why not sleep with that dude? Uh, well, for one, he's not my type. Logan had already made it clear that the marriage bit didn't matter, at least not for the sake of this conversation. You already said that, dork. Logan rolled his eyes. Stop looking at the donuts. You don't eat them. Anyway, why isn't what's-his-name your type? Well, for one, he writes rhyming poetry. <laughs> Logan groaned. That was all I had to say. He slammed his right hand on the counter and stuck his left pointer finger down his throat to make a gagging motion. I giggled. It was at that moment the barista came around the corner. Sorry about that, the mid-twenty-something said. He was wearing a faux retro gamer shirt. Michael would have liked that. No worries. We were just, you know, I started to explain myself, and then I realized I should just let it go. Do you know what you want? Logan asked. At the time, we had been waiting in our queue of two people, and we hadn't decided what we wanted to drink, or at least I hadn't, and I assumed Logan hadn't either. Asking me was his way of stalling. Yeah, um, what kind of non-dairy milk do you have? I asked. I don't remember the barista's answer. I wasn't really listening. And also, I had been there enough times to know what was on their menu. After a quick moment, I said, actually, you know what? Can I have an Americano, please? For here. Can do, the barista said. Would you like room for cream? No, no thanks, I responded, and then I added, but I'm pretty clumsy. I'd like some walking room, please. It was Logan's first time hearing that term, walking room. He liked it. The barista nodded. Logan and I sat down to chat. My friend complained about his existence as an unemployed, starving artist type. I whimpered a bit about my adjunct status. We need the barista Henry for no good reason. 
Suddenly, Logan looked to his right, his eyes widened. Then he let out a whine. There was a small child, maybe five or so years old, sitting all by himself, only three feet away. Not mine, not mine, Logan whispered, shrieked, half joking, but also sort of not. The boy had been there for quite some time. An entire minute, at least, I'd noticed his father plunk him down next to us before running to the bathroom. I'm sure his dad will be right back, I said. How do you know he'll be right back, Logan asked. Hey, this isn't just my problem. This kiddo's our problem. Logan cocked his head to the side. His mouth resembled something like duck face. The boy wasn't paying attention to us, so I inspected him a bit. Well, I said with a chuckle, he does sort of look like you. And you, Logan pointed at me, you look an awful lot like me. He was right. We could be siblings, hazel eyes, pale complexion, same soft midsections, similar heights. Dude. I said, changing the subject. Guess what else Poet Dude said to me? I was stuck on his workshop fiasco. What's that, Logan asked. I'm sure he was sick of hearing about it, but he humored me nonetheless. I read the following from a Facebook message. Scandals don't result from the truth. They only come from people's perceptions. Logan smirked, and he paused for a moment. Well, in that case, you and I are screwed. He winked and looked to his right, gesturing towards our newly obtained child. I rolled my eyes, but chimed in anyway, ribbing him with his own words. Screwed, huh? I asked, placing the suggestive word emphatically in air quotes. Har har, Logan responded. He just picked up his phone to scroll through Instagram, but set it back down to slap his knee. I replied with a shrug and by saying, hashtag word choice matters. Logan smiled. At that moment, the barista called out my drink, and I abandoned my friend to retrieve it. I crossed paths with the father, who was there to claim his son, and once I reached the counter, I looked down. There was definitely not any walking room. The ceramic vessel had been filled to its brim, the hot water and espresso flirted with the cherry red lip of the mug. Proudly, I managed not to spill. Almost immediately, the barista delivered Logan's coffee directly to him. Logan didn't even have to get up. And I couldn't help but notice the latte art was on point. A petite and tidy garland of waxing and waning hearts. Hey, that's not fair, I said in a whisper as the barista walked away. You didn't have to carry yours. Logan agreed. And then he shrugged. And then he destroyed those hearts with only a couple of sips. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.